you have to hang out with people smarter than yourselves. And I've been so fortunate about that. And someone asked me, like, okay, how does that happen? And I think it's just finding people working on interesting things who have, you know, ambition and resources. They're working on important problems and they're always looking for help. Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever, and I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good afternoon, friends. David Wright here, and I am your host of the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business Podcast. And I am ecstatic to say that today I am joined by Gene Kim. Gene, it's an absolute pleasure to have you today. Oh, I'm so delighted to be here. It's been so fun talking with you, not just uh, before this, but the late last year. So thank you for making this possible. Yeah, absolutely. Gene, it's funny we, when we were talking about this, we, we've actually brought up some of your books on previous <laughs> podcasts. It's been like a, a running theme. For, for those of our listeners who may not know, can you just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, for sure. I've been studying high-performing technology organizations for uh, now 25 years. And that was a journey that started for me back when I was a CTO and founder of a company called Tripwire in the information security and compliance space. And so back then, we wanted to understand, like, how did these amazing organizations, you know, simultaneously have the best project due date performance and development and the best operational stability and reliability and the best posture security and compliance? And so we wanted to understand how they you know, made their good to great transformation so other organizations could replicate those amazing outcomes. So as you can imagine, in a 25-year journey, there were many surprises. But by far, the biggest surprise was how it took me into the middle of the DevOps movement, which is transforming software to an extent that, you know, I, I, certainly the biggest change in my career. Yeah, so over the last uh, 10 years, I've been studying technology transformations, not so much at the tech giants, but in large, complex organizations that have been around for decades or even centuries. And so we've had 20 conferences, over 1,500 leaders from 700 organizations across almost every industry vertical. So it's been so gratifying to see you know these incredible technology leaders using the same lessons that were learned at the tech giants and using them to help their organizations win in the marketplace. And by the way, just a little trivia fact, the oldest organization I presented was, it wasn't Barclays, that was founded in the year 1695, which predates the invention of paper cash. It was a UK HMRC, His Majesty's Revenue and Customer Service, founded in the year wow. 1200. Where was that? 
That was at the, the, the conference called DevOps Enterprise Summit. And so now it's called the Enterprise Technology Leadership Summit. And so that was in the UK and in, in London. Very cool. Yeah, I think I heard about that. And so I asked, I was just out that way. Yeah, I don't think there's any code that's still running from 1200, but there's certainly values <laughs> and traditions and maybe, you know, certainly processes that probably go back centuries. Yeah. And speaking of processes, right? Because I know that obviously one of the huge things I took away from the Phoenix project was the three ways, right? And, mm. you know, the first being systems thinking, the flow of work, second being amplifying the feedback loops, and the third being that that culture of continual experimentation and learning. I know it was written technically for DevOps, but we see those ways being incorporated in so much of what we do when we're working with clients. You know, the feedback loops that, I mean, the third way, that culture of continual experimentation and learning is really the foundation of innovation in and of itself. Right. If you don't have that culture, you cannot, in my humble opinion, you can't truly innovate. Yeah, without a doubt. And yeah, so that's actually, yeah, thank you for bringing it up. So the Phoenix Project came out in 2013 and I wrote the DevOps Handbook in 2016 and a book called The Unicorn Project in 2019. And so, yeah, what I've been working on for the last three years was a book that I co-authored with Dr. Steven Spear from the MIT Sloan School of Business. And so he is famous for many things, but you know he was part of the second generation of researchers that studied Toyota. And so he co-authored a paper called Decoding the DNA of the Toyota Production System that came out in 1999. And that's probably the most widely downloaded article from uh, a Harvard Business Review. And that was actually based on his doctoral dissertation at the Harvard Business School. And so you know, he's extended that work to safety culture at Alcoa, to safety culture at the U.S. Navy Nuclear Reactor Corps. And so kind of the quest that we've been on for three years is really trying to understand, you know, what's in common between DevOps, Agile, things like lean and Toyota production system, resilience engineering, safety culture, and revisit these concepts, right? And really trying to understand, like, what do they have in common? And our conclusion is that they're all incomplete expressions of a far greater but simpler whole. It's been really fun for me. It's been the most intellectually challenging thing I've ever worked on, but also the most rewarding because... uh yeah, I can see how, you know, the three ways are, I would say, is absolutely still true and valid, but we can say with a little more precision, like what is required to truly enable organizations to win. And so, yeah, the, the book's called Wiring the Winning Organization. And then the big conclusion is that leaders are responsible for creating the organizational wiring, you know, to help enable and liberate everyone's fullest capabilities, problem-solving efforts versus, I think, something you and I have talked so much about is that sometimes we find ourselves in systems that are the opposite, that, that People are trapped in a system that constrain or even extinguish fully people's full ability to solve problems and help other people. Yeah, so important in the healthcare context. Yeah, absolutely. It, it got me thinking about your inspiration for really for all your books. And, you know, I'm curious, we didn't talk about this, but was there a time that you were challenged or you had a project fail or you know, something of that nature, but it was a, there was a paradigm shift where you ultimately took away kind of a, a profound lesson. I mean, you're such a, a prolific guy. I'm just curious about one of those experiences for you, be it when you were <laughs> yeah. at your old company or, or while authoring. Yeah. Well, I can tell you about, this is without a doubt, the worst professional experience I've had in my career. And it was very formative. So it's 2006. I'm CTO at this company called Tripwire and I'm watching a customer use our product for the first time. <laughs> and there was our lead engineer and a chief architect. 
And it was the most horrible thing and a horrible experience I've ever had. I mean, you're watching this person do what we think is a weekly operation and it takes them, you know, 64 clicks. And the pers- this person is apologizing the whole time just saying, oh, I'm sorry, you know, there's probably a better way to do this, but this is what the way we figured it out. And like, oh, it's because we're uncaring, horrible people. I felt like throwing up. I mean, it was just, uh, yeah, and, and so for those of you who haven't been there and uh, had this feeling, I mean, I, I felt like throwing up. You know, he was apologizing to us and no, we were apologizing to him, right? Because we didn't understand like how bad of an experience that we had made it for him. And suddenly I realized why the tripwire administrator job was always given to the most junior person, <laughs> right? Because like whenever a new person joined the team, right? You, you know, want to give it to uh, someone else to do, right? And it actually kind of was forced to my, all three of us, we went to interaction design, UX training, you know, Cooper University. And it was really, we had a sense of mission, right? We had to atone for creating this, you know, this is supposed to be a next generation product and we were inflicting pain on other people. And I'd like to think that, you know, over the next many years, we did figure out how to really better understand user goals and how to make a, a human or humane interface. But yeah, I think the reason why I felt so horrible is you realize you've built something that is actually inflicting hardship <laughs> and toil on other people. Well, it was very... Like his, if, if you look at the history and evolution of applications in general, at that time, that way of thinking of building from the customer's experience outward was not well adopted, you know, to say the least, right? You had like companies like maybe Apple and, you know, a few others kind of trying to push the limit on that. But yep. it's been much more of an aha moment in the last 10 years or something, I would and, say. And it's how incredible it is that, you know, we hired an interaction designer, someone to be prototype wireframes, right? So all these are common practices now, but yeah, back then, you know, unless if you had that aha moment, <laughs> right, you kept on pumping out software that really represented the implementation model of the developers instead of what was humane for the users. Yeah. Wow, man. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, I think it's a good transition kind of into your, your new wire in the winning organization, you know, I kind of got a sense of your journey and kind of what inspired you leading from your first book through what you had written up until then. Can you, for those of our listeners who maybe haven't read the book, mm. can you talk a little bit about some of the key principles and, you know, I know you get into culture and leadership and challenges and adaptation. And the, I, one of the things I love is the the case studies and the examples, yeah. right? Because that type of stuff for me is tangible, right? But maybe we could st- start there and kind of dig in from there. Yeah, for sure. So let me share some of the kind of the problems that I started to see over the last decade that I found just so frustrating. And ultimately, it really is an indictment of leadership, right? That allowed these conditions to exist. Yeah. So for example, I had a friend, he said that the top priority for this mobile telco is to get a checkbox presented to their you know, 20, 30 million customers so they can opt into a $5 a month service to get email or uh, watch movies and so forth. And the estimate is that it will take $28 million because it has to transit across 20 different teams, across four customer channels. It requires CEO minus one level support, daily war room meetings. It will take a, the estimate is a year and most people give it a 20% chance of success because the last two times they tried it, it failed. <laughs> and so, you know, this is not a very technically challenging problem. It's more than just an HTML checkbox, but you know, it's the majority of effort is not in solving the problem. It's around communicating, coordinating, cajoling, scheduling, prioritizing, sequencing, deconflicting, 
vast escalations, right? And you know that is unfortunately not that common. And here's an example of an organization that is not wired to make this type of work easy, where small efforts require superheroic efforts. A second story, kind of on a it's the same phenomenon, was actually a story that's in the book about Steve's daughter having to go to an emergency room because she had injured her wrist arm on a playground. And they you know, had long wait times in the waiting room. They x-rayed the wrong wrist because of sort of the documentation being hard to read or something, or maybe it was you know, the intake was wrong. She had to get a plaster cast. And as a young child, you really want a fiberglass cast so that that's waterproof. And then to schedule a follow-up meeting required them to find an outside line <laughs> to kind of, for them to schedule the follow-up. And they had to find it themselves. And so you know, here's another example of where the organization is just not wired for these vast functional specialists to integrate together towards a common objective. And I had a very similar experience when my dad had a stroke as he was going from the neural ICU into you know the next care ward, where it was just so clear that people didn't have what they need, when they needed it, in the right format, and so forth. And this is not a technology issue, right? This is at the way you organize the functional specialties and the processes and the coordination mechanisms so that everyone can do their work easily and well. So people have what they need, when they need it from one person, right? In the format they need it and they ideally on demand versus having to talk to everybody <laughs> right? and escalate eight levels in the organization. How am I doing? I mean, that's, I see it all the time. I mean, you brought up a health system. I mean, 90% the organizations we work with are health systems, mm-hmm. right? So I mean, I just saw, so I'm not going to mention the health system, but my daughter has to get surgery, a, very, a minor surgery. I think she's getting her tonsils out. And about a week ago, we got a pre-op form emailed to us, but it was a PDF that we had to print out, fill out, yep. and then send in. And then someone was going to manually type that data in. I mean, things like that just don't have to happen anymore. You know what right. I mean? Oh, oh, yeah. And and so the, what's frustrating is that this is not a, someone might say, oh, this is just a technology issue. It's like, no, that so much oversimplifies what the problem is, right? Because what is just not clear is like, who needs that information? What is the best way we can get the information to that person, right? And to right. create a web form, <laughs> right? That eliminates one step may or may not actually solve the problem. Right. Yeah. And Truly, what my, and I, I was having this conversation with my mom, who's the president and CEO of a behavioral health nonprofit called the Center for Great Expectations. A lot of our, our listeners are, are familiar. We were talking today about some of these topics and some of the, the folks that we work with and how really what it comes down to is human connection, mm-hmm. right? How am I enabling the, the caregivers, the nurses, the administrators, the, the folks in the provider organization to develop a connection with the patient. Because when it comes to administering care, follow-up care, et cetera, the patient's that more, much more apt to, to engage if, if they've felt that human connection. Yeah, absolutely yeah. right. In fact, and I think that the healthcare system, especially as it pertains to technology, is the perfect microcosm you know, where I think we can seek the answers. So one of the things I learned from Steve, and so why do I say that? One of the things he mentioned to me that sort of blew my mind was that, you know, the healthcare system, which is just so notorious for near misses, accidents due to these sort of like issues, is that is that this was not as prevalent in the 1950s, which was a vaster, easier system to manage because there were in a typical hospital, you really had kind of primarily two functional specialties, doctors and nurses. There was no technology, very little technology. So you didn't have these teams managing, you know, technology functions. 
And compare that to now, where in a modern hospital system, you have maybe 20 different functional specialties just within the clinicians. You have nurses, supply chain, pharmacy, transport, <laughs> and uh, then technology, right? It's not radiology anymore. It's not just x-rays. It's imaging. It's called imaging because there's MRIs and CAT scans. And so think about like how much more complex the, the circuitry is, the organizational circuitry of who needs to talk to who and the interdependencies. And so what I learned in the book is that you know, as you increase the number of functional specialties, the sophistication of the organizational circuitry has to be far greater to integrate these skills from so many different more people. And something that I've just been endlessly fascinated by is that it's not uncommon, unfortunately, that you know, if you have the wrong number of pill sides on the pills on the bedside, sometimes you have to escalate eight levels up to the COO, down eight levels to pharmacy, or maybe to the supply chain for torn gloves. And if it's a technology issue, you have to go up eight levels to the COO, over one to the CIO, and down eight levels you know, to talk to the Zebra printer team or whatever. And it just shows that really there's something vastly going wrong. And so you know, we call it organizational circuitry because it's not figurative. It's really a metaphor saying that this really in DevOps, you know, there's a way to rewire the system so that instead of DevOps working in opposition to each other, Right. There's a way to do things so that they are connected in the right way so that the right people have the right things at the right time, the right format versus waiting endlessly for in the ticket queue. <laughs> and so when that organization isn't wired well, it's just like DevOps in the Phoenix project <laughs> where DevOps are working in opposition to each other. Whenever you have to get small things done, you have to put something in a ticketing system and wait months. <laughs> right. And the outcomes are never great because there wasn't an effective coordination mechanism for people to do their work easily and well and achieve, you know, the goals of the organization. No, I mean, that's what we see too. I mean, our CX optimization module looks at people, process, technology, and methodology across the customer experience or the patient experience lifecycle. So everything a patient leverages to interact and communicate with a health system throughout the continuum of care, mm. cross specialty, you know, cross department. <laughs> what does it look like today? What do we want it to look like in the future? And, and how do we get from point A to point B? And what we typically notice is that the technology works, right? <laughs> if, if you design it properly, the tech works. It's, it's really what you're saying, which is that connective tissue, you know, clinical and operational workflow inefficiency, all sorts of things like that that are really holding these organizations back. And one of the things I really appreciate that you touched on the book is the leadership aspect of it and how it kind of you know trickles down from there. In fact, there's really maybe two concepts that I would love to sort of talk about to hopefully give leaders an aha moment of like, you know, not only is it my responsibility, but I think I might know what to do about it. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. So the first metaphor that we put in the book is about Steve and Gene moving a couch, <laughs> right? And I love it because uh, it's so easy to dismiss saying that this is a brawn work problem, no brain work allowed. But, you know, consider that Steve and Gene have to figure out where the center of gravity is to get through a narrow doorway. You have to figure out around which axis rotates. They have to go down narrow winding stairs. Who goes first? Or who should uh, face fast forward and backwards? And so they don't need study groups. They don't need uh, a bunch of consultants, right? You know, just by picking up the couch, trial and error, fast feedback, communicating, courting, you know, they're going to figure out how to get done what needs to get done. But as leaders, there are all these things we can do to make the work more difficult. Like, for example, turning off all the lights, right? It might be take longer, might be more dangerous, might damage the couch themselves, right? Even worse. But consider like a slightly different way we can make the work more difficult, which is, you know, turning on a lot of background noise, like a siren, a lot of music, right? Because 
this impedes Steve and Gene from communicating, coordinating. So we can even put an intermediary in the middle who prevents Steve and Gene from talking directly to each other, like a Jira work ticket or a patient care management system, right? And you have to have maybe an account manager or a lawyer or you know, people from the insurance company involved, right? That every step of the way. And it's not so we can even conjure up scenarios in our mind where Steve and Gene now cannot solve the problem. <laughs> and so this is exactly what DevOps found themselves in the Phoenix Project, where the amount of information flow that had to go between Dev and Ops so far exceeded the communication channels that it was impossible to solve their problems t- together, right? And so this is really just a, a metaphor for joint cognition and joint problem solving. And so in a system that, for example, in that healthcare system where wrong number of pills on the bedside has to escalate up eight levels and down eight levels, it's like you have, you know, 3,000 people coupled to one couch, right? And you know, to get anything done it requires vast amounts of communication and coordination because everyone's coupled together. No one has freedom and independence of action. And this is what Amazon found themselves in, you know, in the early 2000s, where, you know, 3,500 software engineers couldn't even get small things done, you know, for the same reasons. And so the countermeasure is to chop up the couches into smaller pieces, right? You know, so they can work independently of each other. And interestingly, I love this metaphor because it has such high explanatory power because Amazon Prime Video put a famous blog post out last year saying they went from microservices back into a monolith, right? And they did it because they chopped up the couches too small. The majority of their effort was in coordination and transport because they were just copying videos in and out of storage buckets. So they glued the couches back together into one piece. So to increase coupling and more importantly, cohesion, you know, so that every service had the you know data at hand without having to transport it all around. Was it that they were leveraging better communication and feedback and continual experimentation, but they were doing it in a monolith fashion? Yeah, I would say it was actually the opposite in the prime video case is that they had split up their services so small, right, that it required too much coordination among the piece, among the components. And so by putting it back into a monolith, that you could introduce reintroduce locality so that things are now at hand, right? So I think the same thing applies to, you know, we can imagine a healthcare system where all the different functions of nurses and clinicians and transport and supply chain are now maybe divided up by floors instead of by functional specialties. And now you have a much tighter coupling between the various functions, right? In fact, I think in the healthcare industry, they call them help chains, right? Where you have work moving laterally across the organization without involving or needing, you know, escalations. Right. Yeah. I, I, the flattening out is what, it, <laughs> you know, what we talk about and it, it makes absolute sense. I'm yeah. running into that all the time. In fact, and then can I mention like one more thing about this, a little precision of language. So, Please. so essentially we're saying there's kind of two zones that we operate in. And so if you think about the worst place to solve problems, it's when you, there's a lot of time pressure, when Mistakes are highly consequential. You can't undo, right? That you're doing these kind of in the production environment as opposed to in planning and practice. And then it's in a situation where small problems quickly ripple out because everything's tightly coupled together. And so like that's the worst condition to solve problems. And the opposite of that is, you know, we're solving the most difficult challenges not in production, but in planning and practice. We're solving smaller problems because we partition them into smaller problems, right? Not the whole hospital system, maybe one floor or one room, right? Everything is at hand, right? And, you know, that way small problems don't ripple out. And so really we're saying there's really three mechanisms that allow organizations to get from the danger zone to the winning zone. 
Uh, one is we call slowification, right? So let's not do things in- Slow down to speed up. Yeah, exactly. Right. And where we can be more deliberative, we can do simulations, you know, tabletop exercises, right? And we can develop the routines and habits and uh, playbooks to do things well. Before you get into the second one, Gene, I just want to, you know, I I really appreciate that because I feel like health systems right now are struggling, right? Financially, operationally, and otherwise. And they're looking for the quick wins. And I Mm. get it, you know, and I'm happy to help them deliver the quick wins, but not at the expense of bolting on these various point solutions that then end up becoming just another one of those things that we have to fix a few years from now because it doesn't integrate with the rest of what we're doing or it was for one specialty, but it doesn't scale across the system. So just I, I really appreciate that because a little bit of extra planning, thought and consideration, you know, you could do things like that, but you really got to think it through before you act especially with now the pace of technology accelerating, you know, you can make a decision today that's obsolete three months from now. Totally. And part of the need to slowify is that whenever you see, you know, anyone doing something in highly consequential conditions where you can't undo, you know, they have to have invested in planning and practice. And part of that is detecting these kind of weak signals of failure so that you can pause, right? You know, so just like in call timeout in the game where you have halftime, one of my favorite, so 20% of case studies are technology related, a third are healthcare related, just because it's just so dramatic. One of my, the, those case studies is the case of Miss Morris versus Miss Morrison, where the wrong patient got operated on, despite 14 warnings and indicators that something was amiss, including the patient saying, you've got the wrong patient, right? It's just, I'm laughing, it's, it's not funny, but I mean, it's in the danger zone. One, the, one of the indicators of that is that these kind of weak signals of failure are instead of being amplified and being acted upon, right, and potentially calling a timeout, you know, you we succumb to operating tempo because of that, you know, these weak and signals of danger are suppressed or even extinguished entirely, right? And so the opposite of that is to energetically slow fives, as you'd say, slow down to speed up. And in the technology world, right, you know, the opposite of slowification is spending all our time on features, right, and no time on paying down technical debt. So the first one is about solidification, where we move work from fast-paced production into slower-paced planning and practice. The second uh, mechanism is simplification. So partitioning problems so that they're easier to solve. And so instead of a tightly coupled system like Amazon, you know, before their API transformation in the early 2000s or a hospital system where everything's coupled together and you have to have these vast escalations, we divide up the problem so that teams can work independently of each other. And so... There's really three of them. One is that you incrementalize. So don't solve the whole problem all at one time. Solve them in smaller batches. The second way is modularization. You know, the notion of creating these microservices and technology or these kind of lateral teams that work together, cross-functional teams, so that there's no need to communicate and coordinate with outside teams to do their daily work. And then there's linearization, which is for sequential processes. You know, how do you tie them together so that they have clear interfaces. And again, you can create independence of action. And so in technology, you know, the continuous integration, continuous deployment is a great example. You know, you have developers, testers, build engineers, security engineers, right? Ops, deployment, right? By linearizing it, you can not just automate, but you can decouple their work so that they can work and innovate independently of each other. So that's simplification. That's what we see too. And I think that, I think people can get overwhelmed by the problem 
you know, or that's at least what I see. And, and that's why I think going back to the fact that the culture and the leadership of the organization really adapting this is so crucial because it, it trickles that it truly does trickle down from there. And if that's not happening, it, it's going to be really difficult to affect change. And yeah, thank you for reminding me of that. So when you say kind of innovation and experimentation, you know, when you have a tightly coupled system where even small things require these kind of vast communication coordination efforts, you can't innovate, right? Because you have to divide up the problem so you can innovate in a smaller cohesive module. And then that gets to the third technique, slowification, simplification, then amplification. How do leaders create a system where even the weakest, faintest signal of danger or someone needing help is amplified so that they can decisively help detect, correct, and better yet prevent. And so that Ms. Morris, Ms. Morrison case is such a great example of that. And I think kind of the what I'm just really proud of in the book is that we sort of recharacterize culture, which is, you know, sometimes this ethereal gossamer, right? These are the words that uh, Dr. Ron Westrom used, who's so famous in the space. We instead say, all right, you know, all of those concepts of like bridging between teams, we want to seek information as opposed to express it. You know, we want to encourage shared responsibilities. We're saying, you know what, you can express it like an engineer would, which is Claude Shannon, Dr. Claude Shannon. You know, he said information theory is all about generation of signals, transmitting, receiving, acting upon and confirming, you know, correctness of it. Yeah, that's really what we need as leaders, right? To And so we can, I think it's a better diagnostic tool to be able to say, all right, if we have a quote culture problem, is that a problem with signal generation or transmission right, those elements yeah yeah i love right. that is it because we've you know made it you know if we punish people who tell bad news right you know that's going to deter people from generating the signal let alone transmitting it or is this i'm not receiving as a leader am i not receiving the right signals or prioritizing them correctly or is it uh, about sort of a prioritization of the action items that come out so i think it's just a, a, a better diagnostic and a more mechanistic way to view kind of how social circuits must run to work correctly yeah yeah, 100%. And I think that for me, for it, it just embodies that for me, gratitude is an action. Mm. You know, it's not ethereal. It's actually like, how am I showing up and living that? Yeah. And I think that's for me, you know, what, because we'll see too, like you kind of alluded to, people are bonus on a certain thing and they're not <laughs> going to push the needle because they don't want to sacrifice that and little things like that. It, and I see it all the time. And it really will take this kind of audit of the top. Uh, so I'm glad we're talking about it because I think this is very uh, applicable. No, I love that. In fact, it reminds me of something that Dr. Ron Wilson taught me about. He called it the technical maestro, which we renamed sort of the socio-technical maestro. He said, you know, great leaders have generally five characteristics. They have high energy, high standards. They're great in the large, but they're also great in the small, but they love walking the floor. And just, for me, that had such high explanatory power because there are all these things that sometimes seem paradoxical or contradictory about like, is it, you know, gratitude? It seems like you're saying that leaders have to be nice. It's like, no, <laughs> it's, it's about you know, those five things and having genuine curiosity and walking the floor to find out, you know, what's impeding people's ability to do their work easily and well. And, you know, have they set up the circuits so that they're getting the right information, even bad news, right? So right. that we can achieve the goal. Yeah, that's, it's, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I, lo I love that we're discussing so much great advice for leaders. I'm really excited about airing this episode. What I love about it is that it's really talking about not just leadership, but it's talking about the socio parts of the socio-technical system, right? And so I just love that because, you know, one of the things that we put in the book is that there's really three layers of which people work. 
Layer one is like, you know, the object in front of us. It could be the code we're working on or the binary running in production or the patient, right? The layer two is about the tools and technologies. So that could be the editor, the IDE, Kubernetes, <laughs> right? The MRI machine. Uh, and layer two is almost absent in hospitals, you know, in the 1950s, right? So, but layer three is the socio part of the socio-technical system. It is ideally leaders are entirely responsible for making sure that people can do their layer one and layer two work easily and well. And so when they can't, right, you know, leaders are responsible for that. And I'm hoping that, yes, it gives us some more engineering terms of things that leaders are responsible for. Yeah. Well, and I think that's one of the, I mean, a lot of the books that I've, I've read in the past, you know, that's one of the ways that they fall short because the things that they speak about are more conceptual. And the thing I really like about your newest book is the fact that, you know, I can take this and really use it which is exciting to me. I mean, we've already started, so. Just love, I <laughs> love hearing that. And I, I'm hoping that more than that, right? I'm just to kind of riff off what you said. I, I think, you know, they say the goal of science is to explain the most amount of observable phenomenon with the fewest number of principles and reveal surprising insights. I'm hoping that this validates so many things that you've been doing, right? And here's really maybe the theoretical underpinnings to validate why it works, <laughs> right? And maybe uncover some you know, other additional insights like, oh, and that also means we can do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And the the other thing that I love is it's all based on experience. And like <laughs> you said, empirical data, it's all, it's data-driven and all all of our work has been built in the same manner. So it, it really, you know, coincides well. Oh man, this is, this has been great, Gene. So we have a little bit more time left. Any final thoughts or maybe talk a little bit about Maybe what's been the most rewarding experience in your journey of helping organizations transform and succeed? Yeah, maybe two things. One is a little bit nerdy. You know, yeah, we talk I'm about a nerd, like, so. That works. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I did this. I was a one of the most rewarding things I got to do was uh, something called the State of DevOps Research. So this came out after the Phoenix Project, and it was right as the DevOps Handbook was coming out. But this is what something I did with uh, Dr. Nicole Forsgren and Jez Humble. So it was this cross-population study that, you know, famous in the healthcare industry because that instrument is what established the link between smoking and early morbidity and mortality, right? So it's just one of those important findings, you know, in the last uh, century. And so we used that same technique to uh, survey 36,000 respondents over six years. And what we found was that we learned what high performance looked like, right? And from the software perspective, you know, we know they deploy multiple times a day, right? Uh, they can do it in one hour or less and they can fix issues in one hour or less. So this is like three or four orders of magnitude faster than their peers. And so one of the, you know, two big aha moments that came out of that was the predictors, the top, some of the top predictors were architecture, like to what extent can teams do their work independently of other teams, right? Without fast escalations or lots of communication coordination. And so that led to great outcomes. And the other one was organizational culture as measured by the Westrom typology model and the notion of pathological, bureaucratic, and generative. And so it was just so rewarding to be able to sort of recast architecture was exactly like wiring, right? Software architecture dictates how organizations work. We know that as Conway's law, right? I love that, you know, the Winston Churchill quote, we shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us, right? It's, it's so much true, right? We create the wiring of our organization and, you know, forever after, if we don't change it, it shapes us, right? And leaders are responsible for that. So that we can explain that and show that it's applicable, not just in software, but in almost every other domain, especially healthcare that we've been spending so much time talking about. 
And the second one is around culture. And just to be able to recast that and saying, hey, this is about information flow. It's about you know generation and receiving of signals. And I think just by reframing that in that way, I think we enable leaders to think about the problem differently, right? And I'm hoping the third thing we do is really say, this is your responsibility. You are ultimately responsible and accountable for creating the social circuitry that your organization or your part of the organization operate within, right? And so it's nothing about being nice. It's about achieving goals. Right. And, and it's about, for me, it's also about having courage. You know, because mm. as a leader, you can't let fear drive your decision making, right. you know, fear of failure, fear of making the wrong move. Right. I, I actually, what you were just saying, there was just an article in Becker's about a health system that fired, not maliciously, but they got rid of all their CEOs of all the different hospitals because they're looking to do exactly what we're saying. Right. Because they they were having those silos in every one of mm. them. And now they're starting that journey. So that's all just to say that I am seeing this the start of things like this. And so I just I know I talked a lot about, you know, some of the, <laughs> the issues that I was seeing, but we are also seeing progress, which is exciting. That is exciting. In fact, if I can make a prediction, you know, I think because on the one hand, it's, it's a shame <laughs> that a good chunk of the 30% of case studies in the book are healthcare related. You know, we have some phenomenal ones where someone is able to reduce an amount of C lab infections from hundreds of thousands down to zero per month. I mean, it was just amazing through the application of these principles. And, you know, Steve put in a story around a women's shelter that it took weeks, months for people to find a place to stay, you know, if they found themselves in danger and reduce that down to hours, which allow them to the hotline to be able to say, first thing you need to do is pack up and leave. We will find you a safe place to stay. We will find the care that you need. And so you talk about the impacts of society, right? I can't think of another sector that has so much impact on society as a whole. As you said, right, this is all the reason to be optimistic. And maybe if I can just say, if we can just nudge leaders to say that this is your responsibility, right, to create the conditions so that, you know, these things are present so that people can do their work well, people doing work on behalf of the, the patient as well as for the patients themselves. That's it, man. Gene, this has been an absolute pleasure. I do like to close the episode with just a, a question I always ask. If you could go back, you know, 10, 15, 20 years in time, what advice would you give your younger self? <laughs> you know, something that I benefited so much from, but I don't think I understood why was I did TRIPWIRE as an independent study project at Purdue University under Dr. Gene Spafford. And as we were talking about beforehand, right, so much of your outcomes in life are dictated by the people you hang out with, right? And you can't achieve level 30 quests if you're just hanging out with, you know, level eight thugs, right? <laughs> and so, you know, it means that you have to hang out with people smarter than yourselves. And I've been so fortunate about that. And someone asked me, like, okay, how does that happen? And I think it's just finding people working on interesting things who have ambition and resources, they're working on important problems, and they're always looking for help. And so, you know, for you to be able to say, hey, I can help with that. In my case, it was doing an independent study, you know, which was unpaid, which is great for, you know, researchers who don't have money. I actually had plenty of money, but he didn't need to pay for me. Uh, it was uh, at first, <laughs> right? Then I got the, an assistantship. I, I think it's, it's a, what a great way to get exposure to interesting problems. And I would say, you know, one of the best things that anyone can do mid-career is just find someone interesting, working on interesting problems and ask, can I follow you around for a day? <laughs> right? It's just to shadow them. And that is 
of solo effort for the person who you're asking in general. If you have a good reputation, they'll say yes. And, you know, I think it's those type of interactions that allow you to hang out with very interesting people working on very interesting and important problems. And I I don't doubt that people among your listenership have also done similar things. And, you know, so that's, I think I, I share this only because I've come to understand over the last 10 years, right? It's like, oh, these, this is why I've been benefiting from those interactions for the last multiple decades. Does that resonate with you? I mean, it's funny just because I, I feel that in this moment, you know what I mean, <laughs> with you. And and it does. And it just, and it, you know what, I've done that. And, I, you know, I was just talking to my colleague about how I want to hire people that are smarter than me. And just, yeah, it definitely does. I mean, it's great advice. And it's like you said, it's not difficult for the person you're looking to help or, or just really be a friend of. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. You know, it's all about who you know, so... Gene, this is great. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Oh, David, it's been such a pleasure talking to you over the last several months. And I'm looking forward to hopefully meeting you in person later in 2024. Me too, my friend. Gene, thank you again to our listeners. Thank you for tuning in. And we will catch you all next week. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.